The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church and Pastor Mark Ermler. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. And thank you so much for being here this evening. It's uh, really a blessing uh, to my heart. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. We're transitioning from the end of chapter number 4, dealing with the coming of the Lord. We know it as the rapture of the catching away. We recognize this morning that the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ is taught in many different ways throughout the Scripture. Uh, again, as you look at the chronology of the book of Revelation, the church, or the word ecclesia, is found over and over and over again in the first three chapters. Uh, matter of fact, all seven ecclesias are mentioned, and these are the churches of Asia Minor. And so as we look at these seven churches, we recognize that God has a plan and purpose. And these seven churches were historical churches. They were actual churches during the time that the Apostle John is writing here from the Isle of Patmos. He's, uh, of course, a prisoner. He will end up dying there. He's uh, the beloved apostle. He's the one that God used to give us not only the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but also the Revelation. And so as John is writing, he is speaking in, in, in a way where these churches are recognizable. They are literal churches of that era, of that time. But dispensationally, we also recognize that these churches also cover uh, a, a, a wide birth when it comes to the church age. And I know I'm not going to be real dogmatic on that, but I do know that some folks um, in looking at these churches in Revelation 2 and 3 have almost got the church today discouraged because the last church that's mentioned is what? The Laodicean church, right? And so what do we get in our mind? Well, we're living in the last days, so what, we must be the Laodicean church. We must be that lukewarm church. Uh, God doesn't care for us that much anyways. He wants to spew us out of our, uh, his mouth. Uh, why? Because we're not hot. We're not cold. And, uh, and so there's a blanket kind of indictment on churches just prior to Jesus coming again saying, by the way, uh, God does not like his church. Think about what that means to spew out of the mouth. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty descriptive, isn't it? Now, I, I go on in, in uh, Revelation chapter number 3, and when you look at that Laodicean church, remember that verse that sometimes we attach to a salvation context, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, that's in reference to the Laodicean church, right? What does that tell you? Is Jesus in the Laodicean church, or is he outside the Laodicean church? He's outside wanting to get where? He wants to get in. Isn't it interesting that the Bible also tells us in the gospel where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in. So my mind just kind of plays these games where I'm going, okay, the Laodicean church, Jesus is not in it. He's knocking, trying to get in it. And yet, the Bible says, wherever two or three are gathered together, Jesus is already in. So what's going on? Some, again, 
look at that passage and say, well, you know, there will be an apostate church that will be thriving through the tribulation period. Uh, there'll be false prophets, false preachers, false churches. All right, now, again, I'm not being dogmatic tonight, but what I am saying is let's back up one church just, just to lay a foundation for tonight. I know we're focused on the Laodicean. Oh, pastor, why should we even try? You know, I mean, it's just really bad and it's really dark and, and nothing's going to happen anyways. Why? Because in our mind we're thinking, hey, it's the age of the Laodiceans. But let's go back one church. What if that apostate church is not necessarily the church that's being referenced for the time just before Jesus returns? I know it's kind of outside-the-box thinking here a little bit because most of us, we, we already are in that mindset. No, this is that Laodicean age, and, and we're really dogmatic. And, and can I tell you, there are some churches that are just hanging on till Jesus comes. They, they really are. They, they're, not, uh, they're not seeing the opportunities around them. They're not seizing hold. They're not occupying until Jesus comes. They almost have a defeatist kind of an attitude. Why? Well, you know, Pastor, we're the Laodicean, and that's our cop-out. It's our excuse. So would you go back with me in Revelation? All right, I know I had you go to 1 Thessalonians, but I thought this might be a good way to introduce the topic tonight. Revelation, let's go to uh, chapter 3. By the way, it's not Revelations, plural, it's singular, all right? Revelation. And the scripture tells us here in chapter number 3, verse 14 is a Laodicean church, but let's go back to verse 7. And let's put this in the context of what we learned this morning about the day of the Lord. Uh, this morning about uh, those Christians that will be spared from the day of the Lord because of the rapture, the snatching away. And so we'll just look at these verses and, and kind of put it in maybe a, a new context and to the angel of the church at Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength. And hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. I think that's interesting, that open door. Do you know that this is a time in history where there are more open doors to getting out the gospel than at any time in our history? We have a media that, just think about it, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, you know, 100 years ago, what did you have? You had print. Think about the open doors that we have in this age of technology that we've never dreamed about having. And God said he was the one that was going to open the door, open the opportunity. It goes on and tells us in verse number 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Boy, that's kind of a different mentality than I'm spewing you out of my mouth, you know. Or here the Lord says, I love you. I love you. 
Verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. That's interesting. God says, I'm going I'm to protect you. Whatever this church is, at whatever time in history it is, God says, whatever this temptation is, this big trial that's coming upon everybody on the world, God's going to protect this church. The church of the open door. The, the church at Philadelphia. The word means love. The city of love. And the Bible goes on and tells us here, in verse 11, Behold, I come quickly. Boy, that would be a great message for that church, whatever that church is, just before Jesus comes again, wouldn't it? Like the time short. Like, man, I'm, I'm coming. <laughs> are you ready? I've given you an open door. What are you going to do with it? The Scripture goes on and tells us, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Well, there's a, a wonderful picture about the judgment seat of Christ where the crowns are going to be given out right after this uh, catching away, this snatching away. We're going to see the judgment seat of, uh, of Christ there. The rewards will be given out. And it's almost a, a reminder to that generation of churches that, that there's a crowning day coming. There's a reward day coming. There's an opportunity. There's an open door. I love you. And the scripture goes on and tells us, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go uh, no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the New Jerusalem. Of all the churches that need to be encouraged about the New Jerusalem, wouldn't it be the church at the end of the age? That's going to be ushered into the presence of God. And there we'll have the judgment seat of Christ, then the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then the armies coming back with the Lord for that final battle and the setting up with the authority of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will now establish himself on the throne for that thousand-year millennial reign. The Bible goes on and tells us here, verse 13, He that hath ears, hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, you can walk out of here saying, well, we're the Laodicean church, and we may be in some corners. But I don't believe we have to be. The truth is all seven of these churches were in existence all at the same time. And you might have a smattering of different churches. Why not our church be the Philadelphian church. Why not we recognize that this is a great open door before the coming of the Lord? That there's a great opportunity uh, that we have as children of God and not allow our hearts and our minds to go down that road. Well, pastor, uh, nothing is going to happen because after all, we're living during the age of the Laodiceans. All right? That's introduction. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. And we're going to go back to this topic of uh, really 
the day of the Lord. And, and folks, the, the heart this evening is to have us deeply impacted because of uh, the truth that's found here in uh, this chapter. Real quick, if you don't have the blanks from this morning, you weren't here, blank number one is simply the word, His coming. And we looked at chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. We saw that the revelation of it, that this was the word of the Lord, the return, that he's coming, the coming of the Lord, and we saw the resurrection. And that resurrection is a bodily resurrection, a glorified body. You say, what about my great-grandpa right now that was saved that he's heaven? He doesn't have his glorified body yet. All right? Uh, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with what? The Lord. You're still with the Lord, but you've got to wait. All right? Well, until what? Until the resurrection. And uh, at that point, the glorified body that Jesus had after his resurrection, remember 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits? Jesus said, I'm the first fruits. And there's a whole lot more of a harvest to come. Because every believer in Jesus Christ throughout the church age, and, uh, uh, and uh, to go beyond the Old Testament saints, by the way, you get saved in the Old Testament the same way you get saved in the New Testament, uh, by putting your faith and trust in the the. If you're an Old Testament, it's uh, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. What he did. He's looking forward to uh, that sacrifice of, uh, of uh, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us, we look backward to the cross. But it's the same. We, 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 uh, we, are, we, we are trusting completely in the Lord. So that's, number one, his coming. And, uh, and, and, and what a blessing it is for us as the people of God to realize that uh, we could be that last generation of believers before Jesus comes. Number two, we saw the word comfort. And these are the last words of chapter 4, wherefore comfort one another with these words. And can I tell you, for the Christian, the thought of Jesus coming again ought to be a comforting thought in contrast to the day of the Lord. I mean, if we're looking at, oh, would a Christian have to go through the tribulation? That wouldn't be that comforting. But it is comforting to think that Jesus is coming again, and he's desiring to take us out of this place. So we saw in the concept of comfort, both the rapture brings comfort, and really the reunion uh, brings comfort. Uh, There the scripture tells us that we're caught up together with them that's the dead in Christ, which will rise first. I used to be in a, a group uh, when I was a teenager, and I played trombone, and these were guys from different churches, and there was another guy that played trombone, and his dad was a preacher of a church, and you know my dad was a deacon of a church, and so we'd rib each other all the time. And I said, I heard your church is going up first in the rapture. And he said, well, of course we are. And I said, yeah, the dead in Christ rise first. And he never forgave me for that. All right. <laughs> The dead in Christ, those uh, that have gone to the grave as believers in Jesus Christ, they're going to be resurrected and we're going to have a reunion in the sky, uh, in the clouds. And, And the scripture tells us that that ought to be a comforting thought. And then we spent most of our time this morning on that third principle of calamity. Calamity. Because now, beginning in chapter number 5, we're looking at what the Scripture says about the day of the Lord. 
mentioned over 17 times in the New Testament and Old Testament, the day of the Lord is mentioned. And as it is mentioned, it's always mentioned in a very dark, ominous setting. Uh, this is judgment. This is God's wrath. This is God uh, dealing with sinners and dealing with folks that have in pride rejected God and rejected the great salvation that God has offered to mankind. We saw the timing of it. Uh, Again, uh, chronos, uh, the Greek word that deals here with time, uh, we get our thought of chronology, and there is a Bible chronology. It makes sense. We have the rapture before we talk about the day of the Lord. That makes sense. We have the churches of Revelation 2 and 3 laid out for us, and then they're absent from uh, chapter 4, verse 1, right through the end of the chapter, end of the book, I should say. So we saw the timing and uh, also the pronouns uh, attached here to those two segments. Again, in 1 Thessalonians, it's all about we as believers. We're going to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's wonderful. But now when we transition to the day of the Lord, it's no longer we, it's they. This is in reference to the lost. This is in reference here to folks that have rejected Jesus Christ. And so we see the pronouns help us understand uh, the teaching. And uh, as we went through this this morning, we went through Amos 5 and Joel and Zephaniah and Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, we saw the emphasis on the wrath, the wrath, the wrath, the wrath of God. Now, folks, this is not the eternal wrath that Romans 1 talks about. And by the way, uh, John 3.36 also talks about that eternal wrath. John 3.16 is wonderful. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's a great comfort to all of those that have uh, trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. But let me read here John, if I can find it, 336. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That's the eternal wrath. That's the lake of fire. That's hell. And the eternal wrath of God will be on every individual. But this day of the Lord reveals another kind of wrath. It's a wrath against God-rejectors, peoples, um, principalities, nations, authorities. And God's going to bring it all down to a level where finally there's an understanding that he is king and he is Lord, and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's going to happen. There's not going to be one person on this planet that is going to see themselves as Nebuchadnezzar saw himself. No, uh, there will be no atheists at that point. So the scripture tells us here of this wrath. Now, just because you're not an atheist doesn't mean you're not a Christian. I mean that you are a Christian. There is a difference. There's a middle ground there. You can be not an atheist and on your way to hell. That's what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter number 10. He talked about religious, zealous people. Uh, They went about establishing their own righteousness. 
ignorant of the righteousness offered in Jesus Christ? So there's a lot of religious people that are not atheistic. It's not just uh, religion. religious people go to heaven, atheists go to hell. That's not it at all. Uh, but at this point, there's no atheists, all right? Uh, because there's an understanding that God truly is God. And so that revelation uh, then uh, allows us to see that this wrath, this wrath, this wrath is unveiled from chapter number 6 uh, right uh, on through chapter number 19. We saw uh, the time. We saw the teaching. We saw the thief. And let's pick it up right there back to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. And we clearly understand the thief of the night. Uh, my wife and I still uh, talk about the time that we went to go see that movie, Thief in the Night. I was lost at the time. I slept like a baby when I got home. She was terrified all night. Now, what's going on? What's, what's wrong with that picture? All right, if there's a misunderstanding of the day of the Lord, and you're talking about this thief, which uh, the movie presented as Jesus Christ coming... Instead of what the Bible teaches, yeah, you, you, you as a Christian may get scared. Uh, if, if, if somehow you've been convinced that, that, uh, uh, that the rapture is not pre-tribulational, then you might be scared. But there's no reason for us to be filled with fear because God does teach us carefully in His Word. And so... Let's look at verse number 2 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Just, again, by way of remembrance, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Here's the big uh, confusion. Most people have seen that as they've superimposed Jesus Christ instead of the day of the Lord. Instead of a a period of time, they've made it a person. And there's a difference in the text. The day of the Lord is not, oh, Jesus has come. No, the day of the Lord is a period of time now where the wrath of God is going to be upon this planet. Uh, Some have used the illustration of when does a day start? Somebody help me. That's really brilliant. When when does your day, when does technically the day start? The new day. All right, for us, it starts in in the darkness, right? We call it the middle of the night. All right, And then what happens? The dawn. And for most of the day, it's really nice, right? And then at the very end, it's dark again. That's our day. Well, you know, when you, when you superimpose over that picture or that illustration what's going on here, we see that that tribulation is darkness. But at the end of that tribulation, the dawn comes. And that thousand-year millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, at the end of that reign, there's a a little sliver of darkness again when Satan is loosed. A marvelous picture here just of uh, eschatology and and, and what's before us and and what God's wanting for us to do. So let's not get our theology from movies, all right? That's a good starting place. Let's allow the Word of God to be that final authority. And so the Scripture says, this thief... For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. 
For when they, again, this is no longer talking about the church, verse number 3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So here we have this admonition concerning uh, this thief. And then we recognize here that in the context of the day of the Lord, Second Peter, we saw 3 verse number 10, that again, that description is not the second coming of Christ. It is a description of the day of the Lord and that fervent heat that's going to melt. What we're talking about is this period of time that's going to come upon this world as a thief when all the world's going to be screaming safety, peace. Maybe out of the chaos of the rapture, someone steps to the forefront to bring unity. Antichrist. And uh, for a while, everything's wonderful. It really is. And there's peace like there's never been. By the way, they're going to build a temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which, which, of course, today, in our mind, we would go, Impossible! Just think about how hard it is to try to just move our embassy to Jerusalem, let alone build a temple on, 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 on the mount uh, where that, uh, uh, the, the Muslim mosque is. That's holy ground. Who in the world will be able to have the wisdom to negotiate that kind of deal to where actually this uh, uh, new temple in Jerusalem will be built? And then in the midst of that uh, seven weeks or seven years, it's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist. And then we're going to really get into the day of the Lord. Oh, how we desperately need to uh, recognize that I'm born again and I know it so that we might have that peace in our heart to know that the wrath of God, I'll not have to live through that on this planet, but that I can know What's going to happen? Jesus is coming for his bride. And we're going to enjoy after, not, not so much enjoy the judgment seat of Christ, but we're going to enjoy that uh, marriage supper of the Lamb and that wonderful time together before, uh, uh, again, uh, the Lord returns to this uh, world and uh, that thousand-year millennial reign begins. All right, number four. Clarity. Clarity. This will be a new blank for you. Back to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 18. I'm sorry, I, I, uh, it's uh, chapter 5. Let's look now at the clarity that we have in verse number 4. Again, we talked about they, they won't escape. Uh, these are those that will be caught unawares in the, in, in the day of the Lord. These are the unbelievers. And now it switches back to talking about believers. But ye, the church, brethren, are not in darkness that that day overtake you as a thief. So the thought of this thief coming to overtake is not a worry for the church. It ought not to be a concern for the church. It's not for us. And the clarity here is God emphatically, by, by the way, uh, uh, the, uh, the pers personal pronouns here are emphatic. Uh, it's been a long time since I've had a Greek, Greek class. But 
Uh, there is an emphasis here to this. Uh, we're, we're not going to be overtaken. The, the people of God emphatically are not going to be overtaken by this thief. Why? Because we're children of the day. That's why. What do we know about the day of the Lord? Oh, the dark, ominous clouds. Oh, the, 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 the tremendous uh, wrath of God that's going to be unleashed. And we see that it's the children of the day that will not be overtaken. I want to just read from that Amos 5, verse 20. We read it this morning, but it, uh, I think it, it's helpful here for us. Um, better go there. thought I had it all written out, but I don't. Amos chapter number 5. Verse number 20, and the scripture says, Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? That's a description of the day of the Lord. And in the New Testament, we see that, boy, that's not for the church. It's not for the Christian. We're not going to be experiencing that day of the Lord, which is darkness and not light, We are children of the day. And by the way, in that city, Foursquare, we don't have time to go into the description specifically, but if you look at it, uh, we're talking about a city that's about 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles tall, 12 foundations, 12 12 gates of one pearl. I want to see the oyster. Uh, that produced that pearl. Uh, of course, God can produce pearls without oysters, right? Uh, he can create anything. But I want you to think from Denver to the West Coast. You say, we're, we're going to put all these Christians in this new Jerusalem that's coming down from heaven. Twelve foundations. Who's to say they have to be run on top of the other? Why can't those twelve foundations be layers going up like a big cube? I don't know. It's going to be wonderful because we're going to be able to be a part of it all. But, you know, that's a pretty big area of real estate, isn't it? That, that city four square that's going to come down, uh, this new Jerusalem. And uh, God's desiring for us here to recognize that we're city. And the reason I say that is because the Bible says that there's no need of light in the city. Why? Because he is the light. He is the light. Oh, what, what a blessing. Paul clarifies it. Uh, it it's, it's like he's being redundant. He's, he's really emphasizing this they and us. But in verse number 4, he tries to comfort here these Christians. And he's trying to get them to be calm about the end times. And really, we need to be that. This is, of course, a, a young church, very young believers, and, uh, and uh, Paul is doing his very best to try to help him uh, understand some of these truths. So the clarity, letter A, concerning the children of the day, again, they're not going to be overtaken. But ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light, verse 5, and the children of day. Ye are not of the night nor of darkness. Well, when the day of the Lord is just a 
continual description of darkness, darkness, darkness. Sun being blotted out. Moon, blood. All the rest of it. Here Paul is saying, don't worry about it. You're not children of the darkness. You're children of the day. And, uh, and it's the children of the darkness. By the way, why are people living in darkness? John 3.18 because they love darkness rather than light. Why? Their deeds are evil. If you, think, if you think their deeds are evil now, can you imagine when their conscience is gone, the Holy Spirit is gone, all restraint is gone? What is this world going to look like? I don't want to be here either. How would that be comforting for us to be here? Matter of fact, the second letter uh, to the Thessalonians talks about the Holy Spirit. When he that now letteth will let. And the Holy Spirit's also jettisoned. Why? Because the Holy Spirit abides in the church, in the Christian. He's inside of us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. So when we're gone, we have not seen a world yet like what's about to happen. Take away all restraint. Take away all thoughts of morality. I mean barbarism to the core on top of all the horrible judgments that God's going to send on this planet, you won't even recognize it for what it is. And uh, by the way, Chicago, in light of the day of the Lord, it will be like a Sunday school picnic. Say, what's wrong with Chicago? Well, the murder capital of our, of our nation. I mean, every weekend you hear five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten more dead. That's going to be a Sunday school picnic compared to the day of the Lord and what's going to happen not just in one location but absolutely every, everywhere. So that's the clarity that Paul gives. Letter A, we're children of the day. We're not overtaken. Again, emphatically, he's uh, really drawing a distinction between the destiny of those that know the Lord and the doom of those that don't. You know, a better understanding of the day of the Lord ought to really sober us up to cause us to see, do we want any human being to have to experience that? And then what are we doing to help them see this wonderful offer of God's so great salvation? So, Letter B, concerning the children of the night. Those are the ones that are going to be overtaken. Again, let me read it. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that they should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Oh, he clarifies it. And I mentioned this morning that darkness is nothing more than the absence of light. If we turned off all the lights in here, you would know darkness. Why? Because the light's gone. Say, why is it going to be so dark? Because the light's gone. How could it get that dark? There's no light at all. That's frightening to think about, isn't it? I'm not talking about a physical darkness. I'm just talking about a spiritual darkness that'll rule and reign so that the Antichrist is accepted and the beast and the false prophets and Satan is going to have his way, that kind of darkness. That's the darkness that uh, will be 
in this time of the day of the Lord. So his coming, our comfort, their calamity, Paul's clarity. How about now our conduct? Our conduct. Let's read on just a couple more verses here, beginning in verse number 6. Therefore, all right, here, here it brings it back to us, all right? Based on what? Based on Jesus is coming again. Based on the fact that all those left behind are going to have to experience the day of the Lord. Uh, based on the reality that you uh, will be protected by the wonderful mercy and grace of God. Based on all that, therefore, let us not sleep as do others. And let us watch and be sober. You, you say, well, isn't this kind of combining these two things? No, the two things are still separate. And the pronouns help us there. We, we, us, they, them. Rapture, day of the Lord. Two separate, distinct things. And yet, in light of that, he's writing to Christians prior to the rapture. He's writing to Christians that are living in this time. And he's saying, based on those two truths, the fact that Jesus could come at any time, and the reality that all those that are left behind will have to go through this horrific, horrific darkness... There ought to be a consciousness in our hearts, in our minds, for these two things. Number one, not to be asleep. And number two, to be sober. So there's a negative. Don't, get, don't go to sleep. Don't slumber. And the positive there is for us to be sober. So in, in our, our little notes here, we're looking at our conduct. All right, In light of the judgment that's going to be on this earth. In light of the fact that we could at any time be brought, ushered into the presence of God and stand at the judgment seat of Christ. You want to learn more about the judgment seat of Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Wood, hay, and stubble. Everything that was worth, worthless in our life is just going to be burned away. All that's going to be left, uh, gold, silver, precious stones, those things that we're honoring and glorifying to God. It's not, it's not a judgment uh, here of uh, whether you're saved or lost. If you're at the judgment seat of Christ, you're, you're saved. The great white throne judgment is a judgment for all the lost. Judgment seat of Christ is for all the saved. But it has to do with rewards or a lack of reward. So uh, this is in light of that. Therefore, in light of the fact that, boy, if Jesus came this week... I would be standing at the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, if Jesus came this week, there's a whole world of people that'll start this horrible time of this day of the Lord. And uh, because of that, therefore, I need to be awake. I need to be awake. I want us to go to a couple passages that may help us here. Um, I'm just going to mention 1 Corinthians 15.34. By the way, that is a, a whole passage that deals with the resurrection, which is, uh, again, bodily resurrection happening there at the rapture. But then it goes also into that time of destruction or the day of the Lord and uh, what transpires during that time. You know, that all-time great nursery verse, we shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
You know, you see it on every nursery. <laughs> That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's just the reality of the resurrection. All right? Uh, we're going to be changed. We're going to be new. We're going to be different. Uh, we're going to have that glorified body. And so what does the Bible say? God says, just wake up, church. Wake up to the reality that I don't have to be a part of the Laodicean age. I, I can't have the spirit of the Philadelphia church. By God's grace, God can allow those open doors to be seized hold of and walk on through. The, the, the admission is that you're weak. And we understand that. By the way, the weaker we see ourselves, the more we have to rely on the power and strength of God to do the work that has to be done. So how are we going to look at it? Are we going to wake up to the possibilities of what could be through our life if we would just realize that, you know, God never said, hunker down until I come. He said, occupy till I come. Do my business. That's what that means. Right up until the time that Jesus comes, we can be serving the Lord. And let's just get rid of that horrible thought that somehow Christians are going through the tribulation. Listen, it's not a blessed hope if we're going through the tribulation. At least not in my mind. And that's how God describes the rapture, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that's what you're looking forward to, that blessed hope. Somebody took the words of an old song about the coming of the day of the Lord or coming of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, at the rapture. Glad day, glad day. And it's all about what a wonderful day that's going to be. Unless you believe the church is going through the tribulation. And then he kind of changed the words a little bit. And he said this, sad day, sad day, Jesus won't come today. So gloomy and worried and fretful be The beast and false prophet we soon shall see Sad day, sad day, Jesus won't come today I mean, that's really the kind of song you'd almost have to sing if you believe the church had to go through that horrific day of the Lord. So let's allow just the marvelous Word of God to say what the Word of God says, okay? So that's the conduct. Let's read on a couple of verses here. We see that the believer is to be awake, but the Bible also tells us to be sober. So let me read a couple of these verses, beginning now where we left off in verse number 5 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Letter B is the believers to be aware. Let's just use, the word sober is just what it means. We use it correctly when we talk about, hey, boy, you're sober today. <laughs> what does that mean? It means you're not inebriated today. You're not fall down drunk today. You're sober. What is it to be inebriated? Oh, that's to be under the control of something else or under the influence of something else. You know, what we ought to be under the influence of, according to Ephesians 5, verse number 18, is the Holy Spirit of God. And when we are under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, instead of we are under the influence 
of all the cares and concerns of the world. What a different life we'll live and what a different tragic day it will be when we stand before the Lord. God just says, be sober. So many Christians are intoxicated. What are they intoxicated with? Oh, the things of the world. They just, they, 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 they just can't get enough of it. I want more. I want this. I want that. They got toys. They got plans. And they're all involved in this and this and this and this. God says, sober up. First he says, wake up. And then he says, sober up. Open up your eyes to the reality of where we are in this moment in history. It's time to wake up. And then it's time to sober up. Let's not be under the wrong kind of influence. Let's recognize that through the Holy Spirit we can be filled with Him. And, and so the conduct talks about awaking and about being aware, being sober. What, what do I wake up to the reality of? I'll get this. The, the day of the Lord. What's coming? Yeah, for you and me, it's awesome. We get to be with the Lord, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We're going to have this awesome reunion. It's wonderful. Uh, I mean, heaven's going to be so awesome, we can't even explain it in human terms, the Bible says. No eye has seen, no ears hear, heard what God has prepared for them. There's just no way that I could rightly describe heaven and the glory of it. And so for us, it's like, whoa! But what about everybody else? Maybe this will help put in context a verse that I know many of you have read, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. It's really talking about this whole thing of being absent from the body, present with the Lord. It's talking about what happens when a believer dies. And the confidence that we ought to have concerning when that happens. Verse number 8, we're confident. And then verse number 9, it says, Wherefore, being confident... Of what? Of the fact that, you know, when this life is over, I, I, I get to trade it in for a much better life. Eternal life. Abundant life. But then in verse number 9, Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So that judgment, that appearing, that judgment seat of Christ. But now notice verse number 11. Kind of put it in context. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade man. You know, the the day of the Lord is an awareness of God's terror. We don't think often about the day of the Lord. Appreciate Brother Irv. Brother Irv said this morning, Pastor, I've rarely ever heard anyone talk about the day of the Lord. But here the Bible is giving us in context, all right? Here's what happens when a believer dies, then there's a judgment seat of Christ, and then right after it is what? Terror. Well, who's this terror on? It's not the believer. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So who's this terror? What's, what's being described there? Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 
knowing what's coming, knowing about the eternal wrath of hell, knowing about what they're going to have to go through through the day of the Lord, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, you and I ought to be evangels. There ought to be something in us here where we're desperate to get out the message. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And then it goes on in the very text that it talks about the reality that we are ambassadors uh, for Christ. Verse number 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespass upon them, hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Listen, God could have sent an angel to share the gospel with lost people. He could have had rocks cry out and give the gospel. But he says, no, I'm going to use my own people. I'm going to use my church. I'm going to use Christians. And I'm going to give to them a ministry. And that ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? Well, lost man and their sin need to be reconciled to a holy God through the Son, Jesus Christ. And that ministry is ours. We are to participate in this ministry of reconciliation. Why? Knowing the terror of the Lord. Whether it's the day of the Lord, whether it's the eternal terror of hell, but the Bible says that this ministry is committed to you. Now, verse 20, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God beseech you by us, we pray you, in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. Isn't that amazing? If Jesus Christ were here, he would do it. But he put us here in Christ's stead. Right? Jesus would do it. Why? Because he's not willing that any should suffer, but that all should come to repentance. But he gives it to us. And he desires for us become those ambassadors whereby we recognize that if this is something that is the ministry that's been given to us this ministry of reconciliation that we can point people to God that we can open up our mouths and we can show them that yes there's a great gulf now between you uh, because of your sin sin separates you from God but let me tell you about the work of Jesus Christ the mediator between God and man It's through Jesus Christ that we can be reconciled because I can now be accepted by God because Jesus paid my sin debt. And now I'm an ambassador. And in Christ's dead, I'm to share this good news message with everyone else. And then verse 21 is just that verse on the great exchange that I say over and over again. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's the message of reconciliation. (laughs) There's an exchange. That's the message. That's I'm an ambassador. I'm supposed to give that message. Say, how, how difficult is that? Here I am in my sin. Here God is in His perfection. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's the message that the world needs to hear. Not, oh, you can do better if you try harder. Oh, you just have not been a part of enough religious communities. No. 
The problem is sin that's separating you from God, and there's only one way for that to be reconciled, and that is you as a sinner need the righteousness that only Jesus Christ has. He was made for sin for us. He took all the punishment of hell on himself. And he gifted to us his marvelous righteousness so that now when I stand before God, I stand accepted in the beloved. It's wonderful. Don't you think the whole world would love to hear that? Don't you think folks that are confused now by religion would love to hear that? Oh, you mean I don't have to crawl on my knees? And, you know, I don't have to pray Hail Mary full of grace? And I don't have to, you know, bow down seven times a day and pray toward Mecca? And I don't have to do this and I don't have to do that? No! You need Jesus. And God calls us to be ambassadors. And God desires for us to understand it. So this is where the rubber meets the road. This is our conduct. I'm to be awakened. I'm to be aware. I'm to recognize here that uh, the, sleeping, the, the sleeping saint no more. I want to be awake to the reality that, boy, Jesus could come at any, any moment, and I want to be living for him. I want to be sober. That means I don't want to be under the influence of this old world anymore. I, I want to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. And, and when that takes hold in our hearts, in our minds, guess what? Our conduct is what God needs for it to be. And there's so many verses I could share with you just on, you know, the blessing that comes when we're right with God. And Jesus, if he were to come again, think of all the different places that you've been in your life as a Christian that you would have been embarrassed if Jesus would have come in that moment. As a Christian, I'm not talking about a lost person. I'm talking about a Christian. And yet, wouldn't it be wonderful that if Jesus did come, we would be thoroughly right with God. We'd be living in the state of revival. Life again, that's what revival means. I'm, I'm anticipating the return of the Lord. I don't want to be ashamed at his coming. First John chapter 3, I think it's verse 21. I don't want to, I don't want to stand before God ashamed. I, when he comes, want to be ready. Number six, our certainty. Let's keep going through these verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter number five. Our certainty. Now, this is so critical because we're going to just end on a high note. 1 Thessalonians chapter five. Look at now. Uh, Verse number eight again talks about being sober. Don't be under the influence. But let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You know, that wonderful trilogy of faith, hope, and love are mentioned here. But when you look at it, there's a protection for both the head and the breastplate or the heart. And God says, listen, as we, as we desire here to conduct ourselves in a worthy manner. Walk worthy of the vocation where you are, you are called. Back in Ephesians 4, chapter number 1, our conduct, it ought to be coming of a child of God. And the scripture goes on and then tells us after this admonition to be sober. Look at verse number 9, and we'll end here. For God hath not appointed us to what? Exclamation point. If you haven't gotten it yet, 
First the rapture, then the day of the Lord. And, and listen, it's they, not us. And that thief, it's not going to take you over. And if I can't be any more clear, I'm going to say, verse number 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation or deliverance by our Lord Jesus Christ. Woo! Glory. It's awesome. God said, listen, you know this whole thing of the day of the Lord and all the wrath and wrath, 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 that's not for you. That's for the children of the night. But for the children of the day, oh, glory. And God's looking for a, a conduct. Awake, sober. Awake, sober. Let's, let's every day ask the Lord this week, God, would you just wake me up to spiritual things and would you keep me sober? Don't allow me to get intoxicated with all the junk around me. Help me be filled with your spirit today so that I can live today in a way that if Jesus came tonight, I'd not be ashamed. And here God is then just comforting us. Ah, Satan's always into technology. (laughs) Kind of happy about it, you know, because it's a topic that's very needful. And uh, in one that God wants us to really take to heart. You say, what, what ought to cause us as believers to go out of these doors with a renewed heart of revival? It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful truth that Jesus is coming again and there's a world that will face the wrath of God. And because of those two realities, we and they, God says, I need to wake up, and I need to get sober. Maybe you've dealt with someone with addiction, and, and you plead with them, just, would, you, would you just get sober? Would you just get off the drugs? Would you just get off the alcohol? You know their life could be so much better. Well, I'm, I'm here, intervention tonight. <laughs> if we would just sober up. Oh, the blessings that God has for us as a church, God has for you as a family, as an individual. Because we are a prepared people for a coming Lord. And our conduct will reflect that. That last point was certainty. If you just needed the notes for number six, our certainty. Believers are not appointed unto wrath but rather salvation or deliverance. You know, the word salvation is not just salvation from sin, but salvation, we'll find it in the scriptures in other contexts as well. In this context, it's again that exclamation point, uh, you're not, uh, not going to be under wrath. God's going to deliver. And that's exactly what we find here. Believers are not... uh, not appointed unto wrath. Why? And we'll close with this, because Jesus took our wrath on himself. You know, as a Christian, we just need to focus on the cross. Focus on his finished work. 
Can I read verse number 9 and 10 again? On the heels of verse 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation, deliverance. Why? How? By our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how. Who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. A second admonition for comfort. God just says, oh, just be comforted. In the finished work of Jesus Christ, because of the cross, all the rest of it's possible. Because of the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection, I don't have to see the day of the Lord. Wrath is not in my future. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. I'm free to live a life that's worthy. I'm free to be awake and to be sober as I allow the death he died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.